hear God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to Jesus, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We, sing, we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we honor and worship you this morning and give you thanks for your word. Grant us wisdom and insight to understand our reading today. Give us endurance to uh, be attentive to your instruction and, our li- and, uh, and live our lives in, in a way that, um, that gives you honor and glory. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, our text reveals that while John was in prison, he was slightly confused about who Jesus was. Um, growing up as an identical twin, I was always caught in these situations, these cases of mistaken identity. And uh, so, for example, when we were in the seventh grade, my brother got a minor injury in a sport that I wasn't playing that season, so we were playing two different sports. He was, he was participating in track. And both of us growing up, pretty good athletes. So while he was hurt, the next competition came up in track and helped the team. I put on my brother's uniform and just snuck on the bus and uh, competed in his events. Uh, nobody knew except for two friends who recognized me on the bus. And they said, Todd, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, just, just quiet down. Nobody needs to know. I'm just here for this one. You know, my brother will be back next time. And uh, nobody else knew who I was. In scripture, we see that it is quite common for others to be confused about who Jesus was, not because he looked like anyone else, but because he truly was like no one else. The disciples, for example, Jesus' closest followers, you have examples like 
Mark 4.41, they asked with fear who Jesus was after he calmed the storm. Another example, Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders in Mark 11.28. They said, by what authority do you do these things? Later on, before Jesus was crucified, Pontius Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? In Mark 15.2. So in Luke 7, our reading today, John the Baptist requests clarity about who Jesus was. But this question that John asked can be confusing to us because we really know that John had at least some understanding about who Jesus was. Uh, for example, he recognized Jesus in John 1.29. He calls him the Lamb of God. And that is, seems to be a reference to the sacrificial work of Christ. And that was very early on in, in Jesus's ministry. So this narrative addresses John's question about who Jesus is. Um, our, our outline today has two points. One is divine reassurance from a sovereign savior. Divine reassurance from a sovereign savior. And point number two is bold proclamation for a sovereign savior. Bold proclamation for a sovereign savior. Okay, point number one, reassurance from a sovereign savior. John is in prison here. Why is he in prison? Just hang on to that. I'll get to that in a few minutes. But for now, understand he's in prison. He will actually be put to death soon, although John does not appear to know that yet. John asks a question, a penetrating question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Which means essentially, are you the savior that the Bible talks about and we're supposed to anticipate from the Old Testament? The Old Testament is very clear that God promised a Messiah, uh, which means anointed one or savior. Uh, so John is saying, I thought the savior was you, Jesus, but now I'm in prison. Is it you or not? And so Luke wrote this text also in a way that's supposed to draw the reader's attention to this question that John asks. Um, you know, the, we understand that originally in Luke, just like the rest of the New Testament, it's written in Greek. Um, in English, we have options if we want to emphasize something. You know, we can italicize something, we can bold the letters, we can underline it or, or capitalize the letters. Um, in the ancient text, you really didn't do any of those things. You, you just repeated something to emphasize something. And so um, right here, you see a repetition. You see John's questions, it's repeated twice, verse 19 and 20, drawing our attention to it. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? We ask very similar questions, especially perhaps when things get very difficult in our lives, when things don't go the way that we hope or expect. In hard situations, we may wonder if our trust in God was misplaced. And so perhaps John is wrestling here with that. And Jesus responds to John's question with references to the book of Isaiah. Okay, it's written centuries before this interaction between um, John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, between 680 to 900 years before Jesus walked the earth. So listen to these obvious parallels to the Old Testament Jesus makes in response to John's question. Okay, he says in Luke 7, starting in verse 22, Jesus says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. Okay, now listen to Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Okay, so Jesus continues in, in Luke 7. The dead are raised up. Now listen to Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, your body shall rise. Jesus continues, Luke 7, the poor have good news preached to them. 
Now listen to Isaiah 61.1. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Okay, so these Isaiah references are prophetic and messianic. That means that they're pointing towards the future Jesus when they were originally written in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus is proving to John that his actions are fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. So Jesus is saying essentially to John, even though you're in prison, you certainly wouldn't have hoped for that or, or expected that. Everything is actually going according to plan. That's what Jesus is telling him. He's saying, I am actually him. I am fulfilling these prophecies here. So by making these messianic references from Isaiah, Jesus says, essentially, God's will is being done. Though, it's hard for you right now, John. John, is, is, is my will being accomplished? Even if it means hardship in your life, is that enough? It is, if God's will being accomplished, if that ends up with you being imprisoned, John, is that enough? That's tough. That's tough. That's a tough question, isn't it? It's a tough response, I think, in some ways. In our own lives, we likely would not enjoy saying, your will be done, God, if that means directly for our lives, it's going to be really difficult. It's going to, we're, we're, we're receiving hardship as, as a result of accepting God's will. So that is tough. A word of caution, though. Do you feel entitled to a life without trials? A life with no hardship. Do you feel entitled to that? Jesus himself, our model, whom we follow, right, whom we aim to follow, died on a cross, right? So this concept of God's will being done, you know, no matter what, no matter the consequence, it, it's a concept that's, that's really laced through scripture, certainly in Jesus's life. Go back, you know, we've been going through Luke for a while now, but Luke chapter one, the, the nativity, Mary responds after being told about Jesus's births. What'd she say? Let it be to me according to your word. That was her response. Jesus also says before the cross, Luke twenty two forty two, not my will, but your will be done, God. So having this attitude that God's will be done means that you become more interested in what God wants for your life than even your own, right? So by answering the prophecy from Isaiah, by, by answering with that prophecy, Jesus reminds John of this humble posture that John, you know, is, is kind of, um, uh, given from Jesus while he's in prison. So John is having an, an honest wrestling match here with himself and, and God. And uh, something that on, on, I think on, we can relate to on some level at, at least. Notably, Jesus does not appear to take offense at all to John's question, by the way. I think that's important. It's good to wrestle honestly. And I think that's what John's doing with Jesus. Um, but also, John likely had very different expectations about the, what the Savior was, was supposed to do in this situation. What else did John expect from the Messiah? After all, Jesus is healing. We've seen all kinds of miracles. Uh, he's teaching with authority, etc. So isn't that what John should have expected from Jesus? Yes, as the references from Isaiah demonstrated, but he's not meeting other expectations the other expectations that John had of what the Savior should be doing right now. It appears that John also expected the Messiah to immediately apply fiery judgment and wrath, right? He expected a powerful Messiah to take charge of the situation. Remember from Luke chapter three, you can hop back uh, several weeks ago when Pastor Dan preached on this, 
John was a bit of a fire, what you might call a fire and brimstone preacher a little bit. Like that's definitely, you read Luke 3, it's in there. Uh, Luke 3, 7 through 17, I'm not gonna read it. I'll just uh, broad strokes here. But John warns people of God's wrath. Uh, he's urging repentance. Uh, metanoeo is the Greek there. You, you stop, you turn, and you go a different direction. That's what John is urging there. He's telling them that the coming Messiah would gather the useful wheat, which means God's useful people, but the useless chaff, well, there would be, they would be burned with unquenchable fire, it says, unquenchable fire. So that's, that's, that's John the Baptist. This same account in Luke 7 that is our text today is also described in Matthew 11. Okay, Matthew 11, they're very similar accounts. Um, and then a few chapters later in Matthew 14, what happens to John? John is executed by Matthew 14. Okay, so his, I mean, his head is detached from his body. He was executed. His head was delivered on a platter to the leader, Herod, and uh, to his wife, Herodias. So John right, right now is saying, hey, I'm in prison. I thought the Messiah was supposed to come in here and make everything better. Uh, that was my expectation. That's what everyone really expected the Messiah to do back then. Aren't you supposed to punish Israel's enemies and make life perfect for me? Um, and, uh, you know, are, are you him or not? Is what I'm going through worth it or not? Another passage, in, again in Luke 3, gives us insight about what John expected. 3.16, John says that Jesus is far more powerful than he is. And perhaps John is wondering why the Messiah is not meeting his expectation of a powerful Savior coming in, saving the day. Um, by the way, Jesus, he will eventually reign. He, he is indeed coming. He will right all wrongs. Uh, so John is not all wrong here. Okay, but at this moment, this day, Jesus says, these are the things from the book of Isaiah. These are the messianic expectations I am fulfilling right now. Okay, I, am, I am not only the coming reigning divine king. I'm also the one who does these anticipated miracles. Um, I'm the suffering servant who dies for your sins. So he's, saying, he's, telling, he's reminding John of that, uh, found in places like Isaiah 53, for example. <clears throat> so certainly we have had incorrect expectations about God at some point in our lives. When I was younger, I just pictured a bearded guy in the sky. Uh, I did not really grow up in a uh, biblically sound family or anything like that. Uh, maybe God was powerful, but perhaps relationally distant. Um, regarding Jesus, I was pretty unimpressed with Jesus. Uh, pretty, uh, you know, bored is, is a word that might come to mind. Um, rather than seeing him as the author of all of life or the, the creator of smiles and fun and adventure, you know. But when life doesn't go how we want, this flat tire or this uh, difficult relationship, this health scare, um, this financial or employment situation, maybe worse, you know, tragic uh, situation, death, etc. Uh, we may find ourselves hoping that God actually has this situation under, under control. We might be thinking that uh, or thinking, did you abandon me? Uh, or you are God, right? Like you have this. And so when John is, is in prison, he's asking, are, you know, are you the one who is to come? Jesus answers John by, and this is, I think, what he's doing, by reorienting John's either flawed or perhaps even, to put it nicer, incomplete expectation. And so Jesus is reorienting this perspective back to reality. What do the scriptures say, John? Let me show you what Isaiah says. Look at Isaiah. It will be worth it. No amount of darkness can stop 
my sovereign will from taking place. Sovereign, you, you think of the word sovereign, it means uh, fully in charge, that there's not a ripple that goes across the face of a pond that God is not sovereign over in this world. And Jesus is saying, I am sovereign, even when things are really, really bad, like they are for you right now, John. So Jesus points to these verses written centuries ago and says, I am sovereign. You may be surprised, um, and I get that, um, but I'm not surprised. Theologian John Frame says this, God never fails to accomplish what he sets out to do. He adds later, we can no more change God's decision than we can change our grandparents. Um, only God can orchestrate things like that. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So God governs the events of human history for his own purposes. Uh, here's something a little bit uncomfortable that I'll, sh that I'll share. Jesus shows he's sovereign over history. He's fulfilling prophecies made about him centuries ago, but John was never released from prison. He was executed, as I mentioned, but God's plan of redemption carried on. Okay, we're, we're talking about John's contribution today even, so... He spends eternity with Jesus, even more importantly for him. Feel sorry for John? We should all be so lucky. Many people have died for far less throughout history. So at the risk of being misunderstood, I'll say something that I certainly believe is true, and uh, more notably, it's uh, undeniable in Scripture. Although, I honestly, I will say this too. I may not even say this if someone is actually going through something very difficult at the risk of sounding really insensitive. Uh, but here it is. It is clear that if we were able to see what God sees, if we were able to see and understand what God himself sees and understands, we would thank him for everything. We would thank him for everything. As the late R.C. Sproul says, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. Romans 8, 28 says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even in our darkest hour, we can depend on, on God's uh, perfect sovereign plan. Jesus as a sovereign savior offers divine reassurance even, the most, even in the most difficult of times. And that's good news. It's really good news. Point number two, bold proclamation for a sovereign savior. Okay, we have... Verse 24 in, in, uh, through 28, Jesus begins to ask a series of rhetorical questions um, to the crowd about John the Baptist, all right? Like, why did they go out to the desert where John ministered? And then he asks, was it to see a reed shaking or swaying in the wind? Which the obvious answer is no, because no one would do that. But it's deeper than that. We know John conducted ministry around the Jordan River uh, where he was baptizing other people. Hollow reeds and long grass would grow along the riverbanks. So perhaps the reeds symbolized something tossed, easily manipulated or pushed around by the winds, right? But what do we know about John? Well, we know he was arrested, and I haven't told you why he was arrested yet, uh, but it was for speaking boldly and publicly against the ruler, Herod Antipas. Okay, Herod, this Herod, there's a lot of Herods running around, but... Herod the Great came first. He had a lot of sons with a lot of different women. That's another story. But he, this Herod was a ruler in Galilee at the time. Okay, and this is what he did. He had an immoral marriage with a relative, his, his niece. He married his own brother's daughter. Okay, 
Now, even worse, the woman he married was already married to his other brother named Philip. So it was like this incestuous soap opera thing going on here. And, and John the Baptist says, that is wrong. It's unethical. It's against God's design for marriage. And he was very public about it. Read uh, Leviticus 18.6 if you want a little bit more context as to what John may have pointed to. So John was imprisoned and eventually executed for this. So the crowd knew John was not some, you know, some, some weak, some cowardly, uh, pathetic pushover. Like, that wasn't John. He's not some thin plant shaken by the wind. John was a man of deep, godly conviction who was willing to tell the truth, no matter the cost here. Uh, even if it meant staring into the, the very face of Rome and telling Herod of his wickedness and ending up in, in prison. That's John. So passages like, there's a lot of passages in scripture. Romans 13 is, is a prominent one. It ensures Christians understand we're to be very respectful of the law, very respectful uh, of, of authority, right? But if you read passages like Romans 13 in, in a way that gives the state power to do whatever they want without Christians pushing back against things like tyranny and evil that we see around us, you're misreading passages like Romans 13. You're, you're misreading it. Uh, John the Baptist wasn't some jelly-spined reed, you know, shaken by the wind. Uh, and we, we shouldn't be either as followers of Christ. So Jesus says, is John some weed pushed around? And the crowd would say, no, that's like he just publicly eviscerated the, the ruler. Like that's not John. That's not the John that we know that's in prison right now. So verse 25, he continues with another rhetorical question. Did you come to see a person dressed in fine clothes? Which likely would have maybe called for a chuckle from the audience because if you know anything about John the Baptist, you look at passages like Mark 1, 6, and you know, he dressed in camel's hair, he ate, he ate bugs. And so you don't, you don't think of John as being soft or luxurious. No one else would have either. And uh, you didn't go to a palace to see John, you went into the desert. And if anyone's been south of Jerusalem, it's rocky, it's arid, it's, you have sand dunes, it's not, it's not great, uh, certainly not luxurious. So the crowd says, oh no, that's not really John either. And then he gets to 26, verse 26. So what did they come out to see? A prophet they came to hear the word of God from a prophet. And Jesus references Malachi 3.1 here, ensuring his listeners know that John was even more than a prophet since he was the one to uh, prepare the way for the, for the Messiah. No other prophet had that honor. 27 and 28, they're very complimentary of John the Baptist straight from Jesus' mouth here, uh, saying no one is better than John this side of heaven. No other prophet had the honor of being the forerunner to Jesus. So verses 24 through 28, this section of rhetorical questions, they really affirm John's role as a proclaimer of the truth. Um, here, here's an obvious example from history of what happens when the church and Christians fail to wisely and courageously speak the truth, okay? Did you know that during the abolition movement, so when the, when the United States was figuring out what to do about slavery, there are historical records that have compiled sermons from that period of time. And did you know that sermons in the Northern states where slavery was illegal, it was not allowed there, it didn't happen there. So these, these Northern churches were statistically more likely than churches in the South to discuss issues of slavery. The Northern churches often use scripture to discuss freedom. They, ha they have copies of these sermons. The Southern churches would often avoid the topic altogether. Why? 
Well, it's because they wanted to avoid controversy. They wanted to quote unquote, stick to the gospel by avoiding such topics. And we likely, I think correctly, say that's pretty cowardly of them. Um, All Christians should certainly have been leading the charge on that issue. Uh, Holistically, by the way, I want to say this too. The the Judean Christian worldview, led in particular by Christians, uh, was the primary challenge to slavery since it was practiced through all of human history previously. Uh, But still, all all Christians should have been unified in that effort. Um, So followers of Jesus should be bold in comparable efforts today. Um, Are Christians leading the charge today in bold proclamation of truth and reality? You might say yes. I'm sure there's just plenty of examples. But overall, I think it's, that's a good question. It's food for thought, certainly for us as well. John is commended here for his bold proclamation of truth. Uh, that was really John's role, the real, the, uh, really part of his, his, uh, his legacy as well, to be a bold proclaimer of truth, especially the gospel message in, uh, in, in introducing Jesus. So verse 29 and 30, we see, we see tension between those who receive the gospel message and those who reject the message. Verse 30, we see rejection of the gospel message. Verse 30 says this, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God. So some reject John's message of repentance and preparation for the Savior. Some receive the message though. That's what happens in verse 29. So I'll ask you this. Have you ever wondered if it's true that God determines our salvation, okay, which it, which it is, he does initiate salvation and we'll look at Ephesians 1. Feel free to start turning there now to Ephesians 1. And it'll be worth making the effort to turn to Ephesians 1. It'll be a quick verse that we're reading, but we're also gonna look at a quick verse from Ephesians 2 as well. So if it's true that God determines our salvation, why does he require flawed people like us, and even previously people like John the Baptist, to share the good news about Jesus? Okay. So in other words, the scripture says, that God could enable the rocks to cry out, right? If God's going to save others anyways by his own power, why are we even involved in the process at all? Um, Can't God do it better without us? You know, those are the types of questions that that come up. So Ephesians uh, 1, we'll pick up from verse four. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, Jesus, it says, chose us, in him from the foundation or before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It continues, in love, he predestined us, which means it was God's decision. God God was, was responsible for the decision of salvation. So in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So this is called the doctrine of election here. God elects us, God saves people, And another John Frame quote, he says, God's election always precedes, which means happens before, God's election always precedes our response of faith. Okay, that means we can only respond in faith to God once God enables us by his spirit to even do so. Now you might think, okay, uh, wait, don't we have some sort of role in our own salvation? Um, So perhaps you're thinking, um, you know, we, 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 cho- we choose to follow him, right? Doesn't that matter? Well, I'll ask the question. Do you know what you, you contribute to your salvation? What do you contribute to your own salvation? Some may say, well, we choose to follow him. But Ephesians 1, the, the passage that we just read, just showed us 
that we only choose him after God enables us to do so in the first place. Left to our own devices, sinners would not choose God, right? So then you might say, well, okay, well then we contribute nothing to our own salvation. But I would argue that's far too neutral as well. And here's why. We actually work actively against our own salvation. Okay, why? Because we sin. You and I contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that demands our need to be saved in the first place. Amen. Now let's look at Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And it says this, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Okay, now hang on. Who made us alive with Christ? It says God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions or even when we were dead in our sin. Okay, so hang on again. When did God make us alive with Christ? When did he save us? When we were dead, when we were spiritually dead. So I'll ask you again, what, what are dead people able to do to save themselves? Um, can they even intentionally do the minimal amount of opening their mouth and intentionally to, to receive medication? Even if by some miracle they could purse their lips. The medication wouldn't do anything anyways on account of you're dead, right? Okay, so salvation is entirely a work of God. The following parable here that we're, that we're gonna close with, it addresses some of the logic behind our call to boldly proclaim the truth to others, like John's ministry was focused on, even though God is ultimately the one who illuminates people's hearts to follow Jesus. Because sometimes we view that as a somewhat of a tension, like, why do we even have a role if God's the one who saves people? Uh, so 31 through 35 kind of help us see that a little bit. So Jesus provides a very brief parable. There's two groups of kids here. Um, they're playing together. One group makes a joyful uh, song, joyful music, like at a wedding celebration. Okay, and Jesus explains this happy music relates to the joy of redemption. Jesus offers sinners. That present generation calls Jesus a friend of sinners, and as a result, they reject Jesus' uh, invitation. The other group, they make sad songs. That is the other group of kids. They make sad songs of grief, like at a funeral, uh, perhaps like the one that Jesus just um, came from, where he healed someone, uh, and we went over last week. So the, they're, they're playing this funeral song. It resembles John's style of ministry, okay, not Jesus's. John's style of self-denial and his message of repentance and humility. So the people also reject John's message here as insane or evil. And um, so Jesus says, look, for some, it won't matter who delivers the message. It could be John. It could even be me. Uh, or even how the message is delivered. It could be a joyful message or it could even be a fire and brimstone message. It doesn't matter. Some will reject God no matter what, uh, at least at that moment, because they don't belong to God. Why God makes these decisions about who and, and how someone is saved, we can't, we can't say all the time. But it doesn't mean, and this is the key, that doesn't mean Christians stop delivering the message though, does it? It has nothing to do with our call, our call to deliver the message. All are to hear the message. So in this passage, we're shown that since some people receive the good news, like in verse 29, some people don't, verse 30, can we always tell who God's going to save? No, uh, it, that, that's, that's a job of, of God. Uh, it's not our job. God is the only one who can really determine another person's salvation. Our job, we represent Christ 
we share the truth. We share the truth with, with, with others and, and just let God work. We let him work. So in scripture, we're called many things. One is where his ambassadors were representatives, right? 2 Corinthians 2.15 says we're the aroma of Christ, like we're, the, we're a fragrance of Christ. Um, the parable of the sower in Mark 4, it's about the farmer who's called a scatter seed. And the seed is a symbol for the gospel message. So as farmers, we're supposed to scatter that seed. And in that parable, it lands everywhere, right? And, and that's a good message for us. It lands everywhere. Um, and we, we often don't even know what good soil looks like. And it's, it really is not our job to even determine that necessarily. We're to scatter the seed everywhere. And um, so we're, we're called to share this life-changing truth about who Jesus is in our own unique ways, our own unique spheres of influence. Uh, that, that's bold proclamation for a sovereign savior. That's bold proclamation for a sovereign savior. So the parable closes in verse 35. It says, wisdom is justified or proved right by all her children, okay? which means uh, it's, it speaks to how the wisdom of God represented in the gospel message by, by John and Jesus here in this parable. It produces children who belong to God for, for eternity. Um, so God's plans... In conclusion, John received assurance in the darkest of times, and we can take comfort as well that, that God's plans, they, they cannot be stopped. Uh, they cannot be interfered with overall. He is utterly sovereign. Uh, so let us also embrace our role as bold proclaimers of that truth and leave the results in God's very capable and sovereign hands. So let's pray. God, we ask that your truths that are revealed in your word, uh, that, they, that they shape us, they make us find comfort in difficult times. Um, they, uh, they make us gracious and patient towards one another. Help us, help us to be grounded and centered in reality. Uh, you are sovereign. Your will is unstoppable. Your plans are wonderful and inevitable. And I ask that this would embolden us to be loving truth-tellers, speakers of reality in a world that is often immersed in lies. We ask these things in your son's holy name. Amen.